This is an ABC podcast. Hi, my name is Claire Nichols, and if you're a regular listener to The Book Show, you'll know that I can't get enough of talking about mums in books. I love complex, complicated literary mums, and the usually well-intentioned but sometimes deeply troubling ways that they show their love for their children. So when the Perth Festival Writers Weekend asked me to host a conversation about motherhood and writing, of course I said yes, especially when they told me who was on the guest list. Alice Pung, who could forget the monstrous literary mother she created in her Miles Franklin shortlisted novel 100 Days. Larissa Barrent, she broke readers' hearts with the wounded mother in her beautiful novel After Story, and Chloe Hooper, who has chronicled her own questions about how to be a parent in a time of great grief in her stunning memoir, Bedtime Story. Chloe, Larissa, Alice and I met in front of a live audience on Wajak Noongar country in Fremantle, and I did not take it easy on them. I started with asking them about their own mothers. Alice, your parents migrated to Australia from Cambodia, along with your grandmother and your aunt. How long after that were you born? Oh, about a month after they came to Australia, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, was your mum happy when she arrived in Australia? Uh, I don't know, to be honest, because she, she was only 23. She'd survived. You know, she came from Cambodia. She survived the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Just... I'm not really sure, probably not very happy at all when she came here. She was so young. <laughs> and, and she wasn't feeling a lot of support from, because like, she was living with her mother-in-law, Yeah, right? she was. She was living with her mother-in-law and it was a um, ghastly situation because during the war in Cambodia, a lot of the men went off to fight. So all the factories were run by women and children. So there was this woman who ran a factory who was my grandmother and my mother was a 13-year-old girl who worked in this plastic bag factory. So she had worked in the factory of her future mother-in-law when she was 13, but she had no idea at that time because my dad had been arranged into a marriage with someone else who eventually he lost during the war. So, yeah, so there was already a dynamic of really dramatic inequality in that relationship. Mm, so she had her own mother-in-law issues going on. Um, for you, Alice, what was your mum like as a mum? Oh, um, oh, before I answer this, Claire, I'll do something cheeky. And I, on behalf of the panel, I'd like to say happy birthday to your mum, oh. Maureen, who is here. <laughs> it's very special to have mums in this audience. And now I'm going to talk about my mum. Um, so my mum's not in the panel. Uh, sorry, not, not on the panel, never been on one, not in the audience rarely is in an audience because she um, can't read or write when she was in grade one. They closed down all the Chinese schools as the first part of ethnic cleansing and she came to Australia at 23 and had four children. So she was perpetually stressed, she was perpetually agitated, she worked as an outworker in the back shed and most of her parenting consisted of extreme fear, like keeping us in the house so we wouldn't get up to much danger outside and also yelling at us a lot because she had four kids to look after while maintaining a household, while working in the back shed making um, jewellery for, for minimum wage, or below minimum wages. So it was illegal, you know, the amount she was getting paid. Um, so we were yelled at a lot. But I, I think, um, you know, when I came to write my book, 100 Days, the reviews are divided. So there's half of the audience who say, they understand a mum like this because love is a verb, it's not an adjective, it's not something you feel, it's something you do. So my mum loved us by doing things for us. And the other half of the um, critics say this is abuse, clear and simple, this mother-daughter relationship. And that's, that's where a lot of parents and children are conflicted if they come from low socioeconomic backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds or refugee backgrounds or even Indigenous backgrounds where your parents are perpetually stressed, you know, and they're doing their best they can. They don't have time to talk to you about things. So at my son's school, the parents will sit their kids down and say, you shouldn't play on the road, Johnny, because it's dangerous. 
My mum would grab us by the seat of our pants, whack us and say, you could have got killed. You know how stressed you make me. <laughs> so, and that, that equally taught the lesson. Well, <laughs> we never ran on the road. And it, and it was love. It was love in the only immediate and, um, you know, almost knee-jerk reaction way that she could do it. Because after doing that, she'd have to go back into that back shed and work. She couldn't sit us down and console us or anything. <laughs> yeah. Larissa, Larissa Varent, uh, can you tell us a bit about your mum? Yeah, um, I have a very good relationship with my mum and I think she's quite extraordinary. She's actually from here, from Fremantle. Wow. She grew up here. Uh, but she sort of ran away from home in her late teens to I know what people here refer to as the Eastern States, um, <laughs> where she joined the Women's Navy and, and met my father. And then, like um, many women at that time who had good careers and were smart, had to leave her job because she'd gotten married. Um, and there was nothing in her background that would have really prepared her for bringing up Aboriginal kids in the Aboriginal community. Because she, uh, she, she was a white as woman. As a white woman. Yeah. Uh, she didn't have any uh, contact with Aboriginal people here. Uh, so really the fact that she did such an amazing job of bringing us up in a really cultural way. Um, I remember the first times I was teased about being Aboriginal, which was at school, it was sort of a shock to me that people would think there was something r wrong or bad about being Aboriginal because it just wasn't how I was brought up to, to think. And that really came from my mum. She had a really strong sense of social justice. Obviously, she became a very strong feminist. I'm not sure that she would have used the word, but from her own experiences, uh, was very assertive about what women could do. Um, and not only did she have this way of bringing my brother and up to be really uh, proud of who we were, she also embraced the idea of the communal parenting of Aboriginal children. So there were times when she would have my brother and I stay with aunties in the Redfern community. And at the time, because it's, as a child, you don't have a lens through which you can look at it. But in hindsight, I look back and just marvel at what a generous act that was. And she wasn't somebody who sought to impose herself into the community, though the community all love her. And when I go there, everyone asks how she is. But she um, had this very selfless thing about knowing this was a part of our connection that we, we needed to have. But she was very forthright. She wouldn't, we went to public school. She wouldn't allow us to attend the, um, the very small number of religious classes that would come up. She'd say, we're not involved in that. It's sexist, racist and homophobic. And I remember <laughs> she once wrote a note to the school when we had an afternoon of religion saying, um, Larissa cannot attend religion today because she needs time at home for inner self-realisation. So <laughs> she was just incredibly cheeky. And, and to this day, you know, she's strongly opinionated. Um, she's very generous. She has a very strong sense of social justice. I think in many ways I look back now and I, I marvel at how ahead of her time she was as somebody who didn't have a university education, who didn't understand uh, racism or f the frameworks as we intellectually understand them. She navigated them just by being a good person. And it's not to say we didn't have our issues, everyone does, but um, I think when I look back, uh, if I think of my, my blessings in life, one, one was definitely my mother. Your novel Legacy kind of touches on your own family story and there's a character there that we can see as a stand-in for your mum. Um, what does it take to fictionalise your mum in a novel? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because um, when mum read, read the book, she said, she said, I know it's fiction, but you were way too nice to your oh. father. <laughs> And it did, and it, you know, um, you know, we, we're focusing on mothers, but obviously relationships with fathers have their own complexity. And, and I, I came from that era where my father had a, a very traumatic childhood. And so being in a family and parenting was something that was foreign to him. And actually 
the extent to which he was able to do that and being a loving dad is also a testament to him. But he did have a lot of baggage. And I think she's probably right in that I, I underestimated how hard it was for her to navigate that. Chloe, uh, what can you tell us about your mum? No pressure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You, you, you guys have spoken so beautifully about, about your, your mum. So my mother would have been the first um, person in her family to go to university and uh, she was successful in, in particular metrics early. She became the first female executive at BHP wow. in the early 1970s wow. and she left the job... Uh, not because she was married, but because she was pregnant with me. And so her, her didn't feel that she was going to be able to mother and uh, work in that kind of a job. She ha- was very ambitious for her daughter. And I definitely felt her, her hand on my back um, in a way that, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for her belief and uh, feminism, you know, in a kind of conservative milieu that I grew up in and, and the opportunities that she, you know, saw, saw ahead. Yeah, there's a line in um, Alice's book that I underlined. Um, a character says, your mother may not know how to love you the best, but she loves you the most. <laughs> does, that, does that speak to you? Yeah, she's very, very one-eyed about her, her children and... Um, <laughs> You know, that's, uh, you know, yeah, that can be a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> is, she, is she proud of your career? I think so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, she should be. <laughs> Alice, you and I have talked about this idea of the children of migrants having to be the translator sometimes for the family, taking on some of those adult responsibilities. Was that asked of you from a young age? Oh, yeah, that, that was asked of me quite a bit because my mother couldn't read. Um, So obviously she couldn't uh, read uh, electricity bills, she couldn't answer phone calls without calling me over. So from a very young age, back then it was a lot easier to um, pretend to be your mum when you were 12, 13. So you'd have the Telstra person on the phone and you'd say, "Um, pardon me, you've overcharged $6.35, which was a huge deal to my mum. And they'd be trying to talk to you, but my mum was this um, very stressed out mum in the background saying, and you tell them this and you tell them that. And you, I, I would say, you know, <laughs> I will tell them that, mum. And it was so stressful for me <laughs> as a younger person. But then I realised, um, as you know, when I became a mum myself, because I'm a mum of three kids, that it is stressful being a mum of three. She could drive a car even though she can't read a single street sign. So her capacity to understand the world is incredible. And before self-check, um, you know, the, the checkouts, I just remember she would always carry a purse of coins and count out the one cent and two cent pieces and people would be so annoyed and roll their eyes because there's a certain thing about being an immigrant mother from a Southeast Asian country that when you grow up in quite um, working class neighbourhoods you, you get it and then you feel like you walk with your shoulders down and your eyes downcast. And my mum was completely oblivious and she'd do this and then I would as a teenager said, mum, why do you always have to do that? And she said, you know, when you're not with me, if I hand someone a $20 note and I need, you know, 17 bucks in change and they give me seven bucks, how, how am I meant to get the 10 bucks? How am I meant to do that, hey? And I thought, okay, fair enough. You know, but she was still embarrassing um, to me. And that was the saddest thing in that she was quite admirable. She was an outworker, but it was almost like she had her own business because she'd make all this jewelry out of 24 karat gold uh, wrap them up in McDonald's napkins that she stole from Macca's and go to the shops in Footscray, Springvale, Richmond, you know, the immigrant neighbourhoods and just sell them over the counter. And she was horribly exploited, but that was her way of getting out, driving her car to these suburbs somewhere 45 minutes away. Sometimes we wait in the car for two hours while she did this, you know, as kids. And... Um, 
So we were really maligned. And then the working class people in Braybrook would see maybe seven years later, those refugees from Asia would have a Toyota Camry in their, back, you know, in their front yard while they were driving beaten up cars. So we'd have deep scratches, keys would scratch the cars. And they'd say, you refos, stop breeding. So when I came to have as many children as I did, three, I remember a couple of years ago, I was pregnant, holding my son in one arm, and I was just walking down the street, and this, um, this person who was cleaning the window said, Oi, oi, love. And I thought, he's got to say something about me being a breeder. So I look up, and he said, good on you, good on you. One for, one for mum, one for dad, one for the country, good on you. And I thought, wow, I live in a completely different neighbourhood to where I grew up, completely different demographic near the university where someone like me is no longer a breeder. You know, we're middle class, we're contributors to society. But right. I just didn't understand, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about breeders. Um, <laughs> Chloe, you're a mum to two boys. Uh, how old are your boys now? They're 11 and 8. In Bedtime Story, they're about kind of three and Three and six, yes. And um, there's this beautiful observation in the memoir about how time can stretch as a parent. You talk about how a three, what should be a three-minute walk down the street can take an hour. Um, can, can, you, can you share why this takes so long? Well, I, I suppose um, small children have no sense of time and for for them um a puddle with a leaf floating in it is this extraordinary uh sort of art installation that needs to be contemplated for you know a really long time and and uh, as a as a working mum i tried and, and desperately wanted to sort of enter this blissed out state of mindfulness, um, but often had this sort of surging impatience, which was just, you know, we don't need to collect that bottle lid now, you know, um, we have an appointment. So I guess there's always this sort of um, push and pull around seeing the world in this extraordinary creative, timeless way and and the kind of um just exigencies of getting through the day oh I, my daughter is three i identified with this so much because i think i read that after a day where we had picked up about seven leaves three flowers four special rocks and then you've got to have the conversation no we don't need to bring them all inside <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're really into found objects aren't they <laughs> they're they're sort of sculptors of the minutiae of every day but when my daughter shows me this flower, I look at it and I think, that is an amazing yes. flower. You're right. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, the, that's the gift that they give us if we're prepared to receive it. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, you've said you're a mother of three. Um, I know when you were writing 100 Days, you were really fitting in that writing process around the kids and school drop-off and activities and all that. Do you think that actually shaped the writing itself? Um, I think being pregnant certainly did, Claire, because I, so I wrote it in between t being pregnant with two children, and so um, the clarity and the visceral descriptions of being pregnant are from real life experience, and I thought, that's great, you know, I'm living it, because <laughs> you forget, and you um, are biologically programmed to forget immediately the pain <laughs> when that baby's put on your chest, so <laughs> I was glad I was going through it, yeah. <laughs> Chloe, the... Uh being a writer and doing the getting to the appointment, getting distracted by the leaves, getting to activities. I mean, how challenging is that, you know, to, to be a parent, to take in their world, to look after them, but to also find that space to pursue your creative endeavours? Look, I, I, it's obviously a privilege to be able to, to, to write as your job, but there is a, you know, the entry and, tr entries and exits between sort of being alone in your study and then coming out and and a toddler is on the floor crying because you you cut their uh toast into triangles rather than squares <laughs> it's it's um it can be really odd and i i wondered you know whether or not some other artists find that i guess a story is a path through the forest. It, it, it makes a straight line sometimes through chaos. And I think that 
actually being able to give give the kid the toast and actually then go away and sort of have these times where you can kind of lock the door and be in a burrow has been was sort of a way to cope with with motherhood for me yeah um i my my partner um don watson we both have a sort of re a, a re constituted shed in in our garden and and he has um he's a very keen gardener he has a window out onto the bird attracting plants he has put in and i opted for no window because i just <laughs> didn't want to i didn't want to see i don't want to see the trampoline i don't want to see the the, the children sort of like you know <laughs> kind of <laughs> like asking where the remote control is i just <laughs> Um, and I think, yeah, so, you know, maybe the writing has also been a way of, of, of boarding up the windows and, and getting lost in, in, in another, um, in my own puddle with a, with a, with a leaf in it. <laughs> yeah. But then writing about your children, so it... <laughs> well, yeah, that's right, you know. <laughs> um, let's talk about the mothers in your books. I should say this is the book show coming to you from the Perth Festival. I'm here with Chloe Hooper, Alice Pung and Larissa Barrent talking about motherhood and writing. Um, and for each of you, your books are about motherhood in different forms. Larissa, uh, your novel After Story is about a mother, Della, and her adult daughter, Jasmine, they go on a literary tour of the UK together. Um, Della's life has been shaped by tragedy. Um, can you tell us about the loss of her daughter, Brittany? Yeah, so the, um, the pretext of the story is that, it's, that um, Della and Jasmine go on this tour together 25 years after Della's oldest girl, her, um, she has three daughters, uh, but her eldest daughter was murdered as a child. And it looks at, I guess, the impact of that loss and grief on the mother-daughter relationship. And I always thought in the many years I was thinking about the book and pitching it to my publisher that this was really the least autobiographical book that I'd written, that it was really inspired by my legal work and looking at the intergenerational impact of parents looking for justice for their children, whether they'd been a victim of crime in this way or had been a death in custody, in circumstances where there is unlikely to be a resolution in the justice system. So there is this unfinished... Uh, lack of closure, uh, but this enormous grief that's often compounded by other traumas in the family. But I did realise <laughs> I had a light bulb moment almost towards the end of the, writing the book where I realised that even though the context was away from my own family, and Della is a First Nations woman who is an amalgam of many of those mother figures that I had, her distinctive voice is their voice, that actually it was really about me and my mother um, <laughs> and the fact that I had, I guess, always intuited as a child that there was a barrier between us and had thought that that was about me. I've already described her as somebody who was incredibly generous and kind of the glue in the family and, you know, if, if Dad's family, which was incredibly dysfunctional, had any issues, they would send the person to Mum to sort them out. Like, she was this quite phenomenal figure. But I, I, I guess it, it meant that I overlooked the, the trauma in her life and that that was the thing that I, I needed to deconstruct. So there was a, a... I guess my interest in it was also this idea that as a child there are these these barriers that, that parents have that aren't about how they feel about you but are about, about their own ability or inability to deal with their own trauma. Isn't that amazing that even when you really think you're not writing about your mum, you're actually writing about your mum? I mom? know, I, was like, I just had this light bulb moment where I was like doing my spiel and it was just like, oh my God, it's totally about me and my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it does say something about us as writers and readers. Like we are drawn to particular stories and we are we we are drawn to particular topics and and sometimes it's part of the process for us to find out why that is i don't know that that's something that we're always aware of until you really dig deep into it and that was certainly my experience in writing this story the character of della has obviously spent those 25 years grieving for britney fighting for answers 
the focus has been on the daughter who's not there. Um, how has that shaped her relationship with Jasmine? Yeah, I, I guess it's that complex thing of, of um, Jasmine almost feeling like she is an orphan, that the grief is so overwhelming that it can give a sense of, of being abandoned. But, you know, I, I do feel like Della is somebody who, whose actions show love. But she's, there's also this dynamic, which I think is a, is a, you know, a, a fairly universal one, that when children have a different life trajectory than their parents, so, so Della still lives in the country town, the fairly segregated country town where they grew up, but Jasmine goes away to university and has this whole different life and she's a reader and engages in, in the canon that they go on the trip to see, whereas Della's never read a book. She only knows the stories from what she's seen on television. She's got such a different, more emotional, heartfelt way of seeing the world, whereas Jasmine's very intellectual. And it's the, it's the, the life that Della wanted for her. She didn't want her to be stuck in this town. But there is, I think, that intergenerational thing that's very much a part of the First Nations experience. It's very much a part of the migrant experience. It's often a, a part of the, you know, the lower socioeconomic experience, that the sacrifices that parents make to give their children the chances that they didn't have means that there is just a completely different way. There's almost a disconnection. You know, Della describes Jasmine as this kind of strange creature who speaks a different language, almost like a fairy or a unicorn. Like, she's magical and mystical and she loves her, but she just doesn't understand her. And I think that's that's part of the, the tragedy. And for Jasmine, in a way, all she's wanted is to have been seen, um, but doesn't understand the complexities with which... Della sees the world. I think that's speaking to you, Alice, right? Like that, that gap between the parent and the child when the child has pursued the life that the parent wants for them, but it drives them apart. Oh, that, that's so spot on, Larissa. I was very moved by everything you said, especially parents who haven't dealt with intergenerational trauma, and it seems unlikely that they will in this lifetime because, um, firstly, you need... Uh, Finances. Secondly, you need to believe that you, in, in, um, that you can get help. You know, my, my mother, uh, having survived all these wars and um, trauma, she doesn't, she believes there's a, you're either sane or you're insane. There's nothing in between. There's this mental illness business. <laughs> so um, even just two days ago, so she sends me, she can use a phone now, she can send videos. And ever since I had my first child, who's now seven, she sent me these ghastly videos completely out of love. Now, mind you, she grew up in a country where not so long ago, men and women were selling their children on the streets because they were starving. So this isn't 100 years ago. This is men and women with their kids on the streets just selling them as labour or as young wives or underaged um, brides. Terrible things in Cambodia. Um, so when I first took my young son, who wasn't even one yet, to China for a short residency, she sent me a video of kids being kidnapped and um, down the streets. And a few days ago, she sent me a video of, oh, I, you know, every time I see these links, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> some coldness, some cold jolt goes in my heart. I, th I think I'll delete it, but I always click on it. And it was all these um, domestic carers in China or Cambodia or Vietnam shaking babies, turning them upside down, whacking them, where they'd set up secret cameras. The parents had done that. Now, in some countries, there's no censorship. There's no, um, you know, the Australians won't let you print stuff in newspaper of landmine victims. Or, <laughs> But those countries, anything is on their YouTube. So I'm watching this and I stopped it and I thought, wow, this isn't helping me at all. This is just scaring the crap out of me. <laughs> and for my mother, um, that, that's the way you teach your children um, to stay safe. So she didn't like us venturing too far. And if you can keep your children close, you're a successful parent because people were selling their kids, you know. <laughs> so, so it's a very different, it's a chasm that we can't cross. And I never criticise her now for these videos. I don't yell at her and I don't say, don't send me this traumatic stuff because she's lived through trauma and I haven't. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Larissa, um, you talked about 
Della's big heart and I, I think that's what I adore most about this character is just her her open-heartedness um how she'll just be like sure I'll go on this tour and I'm gonna learn what I can and she's just such a fabulous character I, I'm keen to know how much you can feel for a fictional character when you're writing them well I had um I crafted Della from a couple of women who were really important in my life and who had that same uh, sense of uh, just sort of really telling it like it is. Um, so her voice was actually really strong. I found it easier to write her character and the way that she would interact in the places she went to and the, the thoughts that she would have because I just loved those women so much I could kind of feel them. I, I found it so much easier to write her than I... I found writing Jasmine, who was much more like me and engaged in the same literary canon in the same way. And um, there were times when I really struggled with writing her and oh. finding her voice and, and you know, um, thinking I didn't really like her much as a character, <laughs> whereas I really loved Della because she was so, she's so pure in how she sees the world. And I don't mean that in a kind of... A childish way because she she's wise but just that there's no there's no pretense about her and she is just motivated by um a big heart and a and a curiosity and in a way the the journey for jasmine through the book is actually to realize the what Della's gifts are that the way she's judged her before have been the wrong way to judge her and it's part of her own development to see her in that way so I actually found her um, a, a fairly easy character to write and for me she was much more reflective of what I knew of those kind of women in the community who have had their their own share of setbacks, disadvantage, grief, but still are the glue for everyone else. They're still the ones everyone will go to when something needs to be fixed. They're the ones who get the community bus to get the kids to school. You know, they're the ones who people go to to solve the problems. Um, there is a, I mean, I guess for me, it's easy to look at from outside these communities and see dysfunction and pain and crisis. But if you're aware of what it's actually like to be in them, what you see is resilience, tenacity, bravery and strength. Mm. And, and to me, because I love that about those women, she was very easy to craft. That's beautiful. Um, Chloe, uh, your book is a little bit different than the others. It's a bedtime story. It's a memoir and the mum in the book is you. <laughs> We're not hiding behind any layers of fiction here. No. Um, you've mentioned your husband, Don Watson. Um, tell us about the, the crisis that your family faced that kind of inspired this book. Uh, in, in 2018, Don was diagnosed with a, a rare leukaemia and the prognosis was very poor. You know, it, it um, and so we, we we had to find a way to talk to our children about mortality. And I went on a, a deep dive for through children's literature, hoping to find uh, the right story. And it's interesting talking uh, here on the stage about our our mothers and and parenting because so many of our best-loved children's stories are actually about orphans. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, you know, there are orphan stories in every culture um, and through all of time. And, and I suppose sort of, A, you get to have a better story because, you know, without a parent around trying to scare you about, you know, don't stray off the path, um, <laughs> you can actually, you're open to kind of these adventures happening. Also, I think these stories allow children to imagine and confront their greatest fear, which is often the loss of their parents. So... It's interesting, though, that this is kind of... These stories without the psychology that we're talking about, because often these characters are really kind of quite flat psychologically, um, they, they're the ones who get to go off and um, get the treasure and slay the monster 
and um, I don't know, find their way into a, um, you know, some sort of promised land. Yeah, so they're great stories, but where does that leave you when you're trying to find that story that speaks to your children about what you need to say to them? Well, I suppose I realised that actually the the thing that you need to to do with children is to be is to be honest, and and I had an idea that once I told the kids about their their father's diagnosis that you know suddenly a kind of curtain was going to come down on a on a happy on a happy you know in inverted commas childhood and actually uh, instead by not talking about this it it, it created a, a kind of monster in our house and uh, what's unspoken it, it 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 can fill a room and grow and mutate and um, become much scarier than than what is actually happening and uh, you know children are are fascinated by the philosophical questions about life and death they're they're much more open to these conversations than than a lot of adults are which i came to realize and part of talking to kids openly about about death actually allows us to start to talk about the best ways we can live mm. what does it take to expose your own limitations as a parent in a book, to write that down and hand it to the world? Well, I, I, I suppose actually, I mean, sometimes as a writer, there, there's a question that you ask yourself of who am I writing this for? <laughs> I mean, and that, you know, sometimes that, that can be asked, you know, in, in quite bleak ways, you know, uh, does anyone want to read this? And um, I actually felt that I wanted to write this book directly to my children and that it would be something that they would be able to pick off the shelf one day and perhaps understand a, a really um, pivotal moment in their lives. And I suppose, you know, how, how, what, what happens to us? There's so much amazing storytelling, you know, about what, what goes on after we die. It's that sort of, I mean, maybe how storytelling was invented, I mean, in part to answer this question. And actually, one way that we can commune with with our dead is actually by picking up a book by, uh, you know, some of the authors we all probably love the best may not be, be you know, with us anymore, but you imbibe their intelligence and wit and radiance and... Uh, through through the act of sort of opening up the page and, and, and reading those words, and I guess my my children, as um, as the kids of writers, will have a way of perhaps reconnecting with us later on, and so there is a sort of you know other other um, you know rationale to to putting this stuff on paper that felt kind of. Uh, immediately powerful to me. It's a, a beautiful memoir. I encourage everyone to go and check it out. Um, it's a beautiful object just to hold in your hands. It's illustrated. It's um, a stunning book. Um, and I know people will be worried um, for no, Don. I, I, no, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I, I, I should clarify. We, we had an uh, incredible, incredibly lucky break because Don's cancer mutated and I guess the technology we've we're really you know fortunate to live uh, in a in a city with amazing health care and uh, he he got the treatment he if they found out that they could actually give him chemotherapy which they didn't think they could at the beginning of of, of this um, diagnosis and he is now in remission and uh, we're, we're very, very, feel very lucky every day. Yeah, how wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and he's speaking at the festival at one o'clock. <laughs> um, there's a scene in uh, Chloe's book, uh, Chloe's talking to another daycare mum and the mum says she feels herself morphing each day into an unpredictable, explosive person. And um, I think you say in the book that you identified with that and I identified with that line too, that motherhood um, can sometimes make you a bit monstrous. Um, and that brings us to Grandma in uh, <laughs> 100 Days by Alice Pung. Um, this character is a very, very complicated um, mother. Um, 
just set us up, Alice. What do we need to know about Grandma and, and where she's at in this book? Oh, so 100 Days is narrated by a 16-year-old pregnant teenager named Karuna. And it is a, a book that is written for her unborn child because her mother, um, who she addresses as grandma because it's her unborn child's future grandmother, is really, um, really quite shocked and outraged that her daughter has got herself pregnant. And because her mother's a Chinese Filipino mother, uh, quite impoverished, whose Anglo-Australian husband has left her, because Karuna is biracial, she's quite overprotective of her daughter, but having uh, been in a single mother, she works uh, two jobs. So she's not there to watch her daughter all the time, as our parents weren't there to watch us all the time as we're growing up. So Karuna got herself pregnant. And Grandma is livid, and Grandma locks Karuna up in the 14th floor of the Housing Commission flat. Every time she goes to work, she'll take the keys so that during school holidays, Karuna's locked up. Um, and, you know, when you're pregnant, you get cravings and things like that. So at one point, Karuna goes down and goes to the local milk bar and steals a pack of lollies. And that makes Grandma even more livid. So she says, oh, not only is my daughter a teenage pregnant mum, but she's also a shoplifter, a criminal. So she doubles down on her efforts. Now, as part of um, many cultures, not just Asian, but Greek traditions, um, Indian traditions, you, you look after your pregnant um, child uh, before they have the child and postpartum. So after they give birth, many cultures will confine the mother for between 30 to 100 days. Now, 100 days is on the extreme end of things, and that's to allow the pregnant body to heal itself. So that's the premise of 100 days. Grandma has her daughter confined in a flat a month before she gives birth, and then, you know, <laughs> a very long time afterwards for 100 days. It made me think about the different ways that we express love, and we've talked a bit about this already, that love, it says in the book, is a verb, not a feeling. Um, how is locking your child in a 14-storey flat, how, can it be an act of love? Well, for someone like Grandma, it alleviates her fear because as a mother or a father, you have all these fears that you never knew existed until you have children and then suddenly you see dangers everywhere. You know, a really innocuous living room is suddenly just points and bumps and glass tables and poisons. So that's how you view the world. Now, if you couple that with um, a mother from Southeast Asia from a very impoverished place where people literally sold their children or where um, you didn't get much proper mothering from your own mother, you will feel that your fears are a legitimate form of love, that there are people selling their kids on the street, there are people letting their kids work in factories at the age of 13, as my mother worked. Um, so for her, when she was overprotective of us and kept us in this little concrete commission house in Braybrook for, for many years, because I was the oldest, I'm the oldest daughter of, you know, many siblings, that was an act of love. She's like, you're fed, you're safe, you've got television, we brought you a study desk, you've even got a sewing machine, you have everything you need to be happy, why do you need to go outside? Because outside were hooligans chucking rock through our windows. Outside were grown men, the um, same age as my dad, winding down their windows and shouting out lines from Full Metal Jacket, me love you long time, you know, to 15-year-old schoolgirl me in my Catholic school uniform walking home from school. So there are whole lines in that book that are derived from real life. And I can totally understand the fear of that mother, just as Larissa can understand... Um, the psychology behind Della. Let's talk about the way Della expresses love for Jasmine. Um, Della tells us she doesn't have the kind of relationship with Jasmine where they can just say how they feel. They can't just say, I love you, which I guess would be a shorter book if they could. Um, so <laughs> <That's right. laughs> how, how does Della show her love for her daughter? Um, I think through the through the through the book, it's you can see that both characters are trying to reach out to each other in their own way. Her love for Jasmine, in a, in part, has been uh, supporting her to go out into the world 
to have the life that she wants, even though it's meant a, a kind of estrangement. But she is kind of desperate for her daughter to acknowledge her and um, see who she really is, to hear her voice. And I think, for me, Adela's journey on the tour is because she's on this tour with a bunch of literary types who all love the Austens and the Brontes and the other writers, Virginia Woolf, that they go and see. She doesn't know any of that. So at the beginning, she's invisible and she's dismissed, which is reflective of how Jasmine sees her as being unresponsive and neglectful. And one of the things that occurs for Della through the trip is that other people, before Jasmine does, start to see the wisdom in what she's got to say. And particularly when she starts drawing on her own First Nations culture and remembers the stories of her own tradition. So she um, shares some of those complex uh, cultural stories that the other people on the trip start to see her in a different way. But through that process, Della goes from being somebody who um, is invisible to somebody who finds her voice. And through, it's only when she can do that can she actually find the way to communicate with Jasmine. So they both go on a, on a journey, but for me, Della's is the most profound. It's not just about how she reconnects with her daughter, but what we see her do during the trip is she almost is finds a voice that sees her begin the start of her own eldership, so transforming the way she sees herself. So um, I think part of that, of her personal transformation is the thing that she needs to go through before she can express that. that I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, we just don't talk to each other like that. Um, it's off, that's often code for, I don't know how to express myself. Yeah. Or these conversations make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. Um, Chloe, uh, you are a fiction writer as well as memoirist, non-fiction writer. Um, your fiction books are A Child's Book of True Crime and The Engagement. We've heard about how mums, our own mums keep creeping into our fiction. Have you ever felt this? Have you felt your own mum trying to sneak her way into one of your books? Well, I'm listening to Larissa thinking, you know, when you had your epiphany about your mother thinking, gosh, it's it's going to, you know, creep up on me, uh, you know, any moment at a writer's festival <laughs> that I realised my sort of oeuvre is really about uh, Juliana. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't been aware of it, but perhaps you know. After today, <laughs> you'll be on alert. And what about this idea that we've been exploring? I think particularly with the character of Grandma, that love and hate, love and fear, can coexist at the same time. Is that something that speaks to you? Absolutely. I, I, I think you know those those sort of ambivalences are, um, you know, and, and the kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance between being able to hold two positions at the same time are, are, are really are really interesting to me. And actually, I think that, that, you know, it's a way that we keep reading as readers because we sometimes there's sort of clearly two different, two different endings as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, amongst the multiplicity of, of them, you know, the, you know, a thriller... Uh, and I think of sort of a lot of sort of fairy stories as being thrillers. Will will Jack break his neck going down the beanstalk? You know, will uh, will Rapunzel get out of the tower? You know, well, can the woodcutter arrive in time for the, the wolf? I mean, there's sort of, you know, there's always this balance between life and death, I think, that, that keeps us, um, you know, engaged on the page and, and, and love and hate as well. Um, and you were talking about fairy tales again there. Um of course, Alice's book has the damsel locked in the tower. You're talking about fairy tales from about page two, I think, Alice, in your book. Um, but, Chloe, reading your book, I was shocked to learn that in Snow White, the original version, it's not the stepmother who demands Snow White's killing. It's, it was originally the mother. That's right. Yes. Uh, a lot of these, these stories were, were sanitised for a, I guess, a kind of 
you know, literary bourgeois audience. So the Grimm's who went out collecting stories, you know, through the German romantic, through the sort of period of German romanticism, because there was this idea of turning back to the folk, folk wisdom, and they were collecting stories that had come from Persia and Asia and Europe. Uh, and they're often also told throughout as a response to war and plague. So there is a lot of grief and violence in there. I think Calvino talked about fairy stories as a, as a, as a catalogue of, of, of human possibilities. These, these stories were then considered too bawdy and, uh, and feral really for a the the readership and actually the in the second edition they were um, domesticated further and, and uh, Tolkien actually writes about these these stories then being kind of relegated to the playroom like shabby furniture because sort of the grit and the gore was taken away so yes it was um, Snow White's mother who wanted to to kill her not her stepmother um, you know in an early Early telling of 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 Cinderella, it's it's her it's her um, her far after her mother dies, her father decides he'll marry her, and that's why she's fled penniless and is working in in as a in in kitchens, and uh, you know there are all sorts of other you know ways in which we've we've come to sort of Disneyfy these stories. I mean, it does suggest though the monstrous that can be within the parent, right? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Um, let's um, wrap up a couple of good news things before we finish today. Uh, Larissa, after story, long listed for the Dublin Literary yeah. Award. Thank um, you. <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. Um, uh, is it exciting when that sort of stuff happens? Um, it is because I don't think anyone writes thinking that that's what will happen. And it is that when it goes to Chloe's point, when you're writing, you're thinking, who will this land is, you know, will, will this resonate? Will this thing that I'm really passionate about and these characters I love find a home? Um, so so it, it's nice. I have to say the, the, they're nice, but I think the, the more rewarding thing is when you meet people who've really loved the book. And my mother even said, well, I think this is your best one yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I took a lot of heart with that. Maybe that was the best. Um, Lucy, yeah. if you meet the judges, I'm sure that they will all be people who really love this book. Yeah. So it's just, you know, you just yeah. you haven't met them yet. But that's what mums are for. That's right. <laughs> um, and Alice, um, this is huge, 100 days, uh, set to be made into a film. Oh, oh yes, well, yeah, it's quite exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but in, let me, in a minute, what can you tell us? Oh, it's not the kind of film you would expect because you think it would be a coming-of-age story based on the perspective of this 16-year-old girl because it's from her perspective. And most people who read the book identify with Karuna because it's first-person narration. But this brilliant young playwright, Michelle Law, who is also a friend of mine and Benjamin Law's younger sister, so quite innovative and um, quite risk-taking, is going to tell it from the perspective of the middle-aged mother, from <gasps> grandma's perspective. Wow. And it's going to be a horror film, a psychological <laughs> horror. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Um, I want to thank all of you for such a rich and generous conversation. It's not always easy to get up and talk about your mums on stage um, here at Perth Writers Weekend. My name is Claire Nichols, and I have been speaking to Alice Pung. Her latest novel is 100 Days. Larissa Barrent is the author of After Story and Chloe Hooper's memoir is called Bedtime Story. Can you please thank them all? been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.